today on Ag News Daily. So I thought there would be a good market niche for sheep dairy products. I really love sheep as a as a livestock animal. I- good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is June 27th. It's Wednesday here on the podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, one of the hosts, joined as always by my co-host Mike Pearson. Mike, what do you know today? I know lots of stuff, Delaney Howell. I just ate some delicious gummy bears for lunch, so I'm feeling pepped up, I'm energized, I'm ready to rock and roll and get through the news. How about you? Oh, that's what you had for lunch was gummy bears? Well, gummy bears and a Mountain Dew. It's all about a balanced that diet. That sounds really healthy. I went to the gym this morning, so I, I curbed those gummy bears for you. Oh, well, see, on balance, we're living a life of moderation. <laughs> sure. So what's what else going on? What you went to the gym? That sucks. What else is happening? <laughs> uh, well, I've gotten actually some news from Monty James, who is in China this week. He's been on the podcast before. There's a group of farm broadcasters right now. Actually, it was an interesting story because it literally got down to the deadline before they got their J2 or their journalist visas approved because they were supposed to be in China, I believe, last Thursday. And they were all there was a group of them sitting in L.A. still waiting to get their visas approved. They did thankfully get them approved. But because of all the trade and tariff stuff, they were concerned that they they were concerned that they potentially might not get to go to China at all. But they did. They're there. They What's, what are you hearing from Monty? What's the story? Well, you know, he had some really great things to say uh, that he's just been emailing me back and forth because of, like, of course, social media and some of that stuff is banned over there. Um, the great so, firewall. Yeah, time. exactly. So he did send me a little interview here that he had with uh, former governor of Iowa, Terry Branstead, and current Chinese ambassador. And I think we should just play that clip here because it's about getting beef into China. So let's kick it off to Mani. Well, we worked for over 13 years to get this market open for beef. We're continuing to try to hammer away at some of the other restrictions that are preventing greater access. Uh, the American beef, I'm going to tell you, I'm living here. And, uh, you know, the, the other choices are the grass-fed beef from Australia or other countries, it's not nearly the, the juicy uh, corn-fed beef that we're used to in the United States. So another thing they don't have here that we really need is sweet corn. Oh, <laughs> sweet corn is awful. I mean, it's like field corn. Uh, so I'm saying the two things that I really missed last year was the Iowa State Fair and sweet corn. <laughs> now, we we have been able to get through the commissary at the embassy. We've been able to get some American beef. And so we've been able to serve American beef at the ambassador's residence. But uh, it, it, And there are some places around uh, China where you can get it. But we need to have much greater access. Well, Delaney, it's good to hear uh, uh, Governor Branson, Ambassador Branson, I guess I don't know what the... I suppose ambassador. Uh, since that's you what go with doing the now. highest level title. So, would ambassador or governor be higher? Well, I've heard highest level, and I think ambassador is there. Mm-hmm. And then Tom Vilsack told me highest elected, which would be governor. Oh. So, who knows? My feeling is he's an ambassador. That's his job title now. And then when he's done, he'll just be Mr. Brandstad again. I don't like the titles that stick around forever. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I object the qu- to it on oh, the grounds of the. 
I object. We're a citizens-based democracy. You serve, and then you're done. You're right back to a regular citizen. All right. I don't think former governors, former presidents should still be called that. They should just be Mr. or Mrs. after they're done. That's my theory. Anyhow, you know, we're talking D.C. Delaney, Mm -hmm. we've got discussions going on in D.C. about the farm bill on the Senate side. I know you like to keep up to date uh, a lot more closely than I do (laughs) with the politics. What are you hearing? Well... I'm getting a little tired of the farm bill debate, but yes, I have looked at some news about it today. Um, so as of, let's see, I think Tuesday is when they had to have amendments filed. There were more than 150 filed that they were going to start discussing now um, as they move forward with trying to decide what pieces to keep and what pieces to change in the farm bill. Some of those big pieces to be debated will include uh, cutting hay and grazing livestock or the CRP enrollment. And, of course, Chuck Grassley is pushing amendments around crop insurance payments. Um, Those are the two big ones that I've heard so far. Yeah, and uh, the CRP modification is coming from John Thune there in Mm -hmm. South Dakota. And I'm I'm kind of interested. Basically, he wants to raise CRP enrollment by a million acres, bring it from 24 up to 25 million acres, but also allow landowners to hay or graze up to one-third of their CRP acreage every year in exchange for a 25% decline in rental payment, which that addresses a lot of my concerns with CRP, which is that... You know, this is perfectly good forage ground for livestock that's not being used. And, you know, maybe this is a way we can bring it into the fold. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I'm not as up to date maybe on that kind of a thing. I know you, that's like your biggest soapbox, so you always follow it. But Yeah, CRP, man, that's that's the rock in my shoe. I think it's a great <laughs> program. I think it's great for a lot of acres, marginal acres, mm-hmm. acres along a stream and so forth. But for whole farms, oh, it's frustrating to me. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, Senator Charles Grassley's uh, bill to uh, put a payment cap in place mm-hmm. and tighten the rules on who gets to be an active farmer is stirring up a lot of debate uh, amongst farm groups in the country. Yeah. So we'll see what the outcome is of those. I've got uh, some news here since we're on the topic of, of Washington stuff, and then we can get away from it. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court decided a case, and it was called South Dakota versus Wayfair. And Basically, the Supreme Court ruled that states have the right to get sales tax revenue from stuff that is bought online. And, uh, you know, Delaney, so if you go buy something on Amazon. So if I was a Iowa business, then Iowa would have a right to take sales tax even if I'm only an online business? Um, It's even more confusing than that. Oh. So... It's not where the business is located necessarily. It's where the customer is located. Hmm. So Amazon is based in what, Washington State? Mm, I don't know. But if you buy something on Amazon, the state of Iowa gets to charge our 6% sales tax because you're in Polk County on your Amazon purchase. I'm a little confused how, that they, how they would monitor that. Um, I, Carefully, I've talked with uh, Mark Nelson there in, uh, you know, he's married to Melissa Nelson, who we had on, Mm -hmm. and he used to run an online business. He says there's software written that can calculate Hmm. it based on the address where you put in your credit card and stuff. So Uh, then would the customer be responsible for paying for that? Well, so that's the thing. No, 
Yes. I mean, you're going to pay it when you buy the item, but it's up to the business to send that tax money back to the state or the locality. So Polk County, Iowa, mm-hmm. in the case of you buying something on Amazon. When this first came out, it was basically just, all right, this impacts online businesses. There's the software, you know, prices of online stuff are going to go up to reflect taxes based on where you live. However, the Equipment Dealers Association, the EDA, has said that Oh, hold on. This might affect more than just online businesses. If you are an equipment seller Hmm. and you occasionally have buyers come in from out of state, you are going to, and they're still reading through the rules, but it sounds like, be responsible for paying sales tax on the item based on where the buyer lives. Say that one more time. So if, if I go to Illinois... And if I buy a piece of equipment from a dealer that I saw online and I go to Illinois and I I pick it up and I write the check, that dealer might have to pay the Iowa sales tax. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's very interesting. They're continuing to dig into it. And of course, they're just now finding this out. But if you are a dealer or a reseller or you do any business online, they are doing a webinar on Thursday, July 19th. So a month from now at uh, 10 o'clock central time. And uh, just head uh, Google um, EDA, the uh, Equipment Dealers Association. You can get signed up for it if you're interested. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, everything has unintended consequences. I know. Really. Actually, that's a good segue for me because speaking of unintended consequences, Roundup, which is one of the oldest um, herbicide products, is being sued by a man who claims that the product – caused cancer and of course he is from california which is where you know they say it is a carcinogen um so if monsanto fails to persuade the court that it isn't to blame for his cancer uh they could lose close to 60 billion dollars because i don't know for sure how the court will rule it but i think that there's a possibility that they could say this product isn't safe to use. They might put more restricted label use on it, like we see with dicamba. Uh, so it's going to be a big court case. Huh. Interesting. I, I I think I remember they they tried this a couple of years ago and got it thrown out. So I wonder how this one made it in, or maybe that one is just taking a couple of years to get going. Yeah, I mean, I Gosh, think they usually take quite a few years from the yeah. The legal process. system is yeah. uh, is not the speediest. No. institution in the world Mm-mm. but it so uh, the, the court case will feature Dwayne Johnson who was the rock <laughs> no not the rock <laughs> that'd be funny if it was though um that no, he would be was awesome a, but I don't think he would be I don't think he would be. so I, I no. trust the rock it was a you know he's a 46 year old groundskeeper um and so he apparently used the product when he was groundskeeping wherever he worked prior all right, and then got cancer and says yeah, it's, uh, says it was fault. yes, glyphosate's fault. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I would imagine as a groundskeeper, you probably use a lot more toxic chemicals than just glyphosate. But what do and I maybe know? Maybe we'll see that in the court case. I'm sure we will. I've got some news here coming out of Egypt. We've talked quite a bit in the ag media about the global saturation of the market for wheat, and Egypt has announced uh, its wheat harvest has ended. And they grew 3.15 million metric tons of grain, and that is one of the lowest harvests, mm. the smallest harvests in Egypt's history. So they are Probably still going to be... Probably because of weather issues? 
Yeah, weather issues, and they kind of tried to uh, to clamp down a little bit on who all could grow wheat um, and just kind of financing uncertainty. There, there's a lot of reasons, I think, that contribute to it. Um, but they, they are looking to probably purchase a little more than 4 million metric tons uh, of local wheat, and then they're going to be back out on the market, hopefully helping to draw down global wheat supplies a little bit. Is Egypt a big producer of wheat? Because when I think of producers of wheat, I don't necessarily think of Egypt as being one of them. I usually think, you know, Russia, Ukraine, the U.S., Us, Canada. Right, Canada, yeah. Um, they're not a huge producer historically. Their production kind of fluctuates up and down based on what's happening with the Nile. But Egypt is the uh, world's leading importer. Of oh, wheat. So they well, that might be a new a market for us then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're probably going to source from Russia right, just because it's close yeah. and convenient. But anything we can do to draw down global stocks sure. of wheat is going to be good news for uh, wheat growers. Absolutely. Let's see. Well, I don't have a good segue other than this is other international news. Um, after attending the World Pork Expo, African swine fever was a big concern to a lot of producers, a lot of animal health companies. And we now have another case that was detected of African swine fever in Romania, which was about in in the area of Romania was located about half a kilometer from the Ukraine border, according to the Global Agricultural Information Network. So I think, yeah, a lot of those vets are concerned about that spreading and working its way westward right Right. to Poland and then, which which isn't Poland a really large hog producing country? Yes. And so this is my mind. if I remember correctly, and Delaney, you can correct me because mm-hmm. I know you know you were talking to the vets right along with me. But uh, half of Poland, like the southeast part, is still kind of old school. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, hogs in lots, hogs in pasture. The western half of Poland is very modern and much bigger producer. Is that how I you remember the conversation? Think so yes. Okay, so yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Could be just a couple of years before ASF is on our shores. Yeah. And we got to continue watching, and yeah, going to be a mess if that when that happens, I should say. Yeah, certainly going to be interesting. Delaney, mm-hmm. do you have any other news for us today? I don't, Mike. I think we should jump into today's market prices. I will, but I've got some news, oh. and I want to end it on a happy note here. Okay, good. Uh, I have talked to a lot of folks who are familiar with Farm Rescue. Are you familiar with Farm Rescue? No, I'm not. Okay, so this is a nonprofit that uh, helps farmers in times of need. A lot of times if I'm a grain grower and I get diagnosed with cancer heading into harvest, my family can call Farm Rescue. They'll arrange for farmers from all over the world to show up, harvest my crop, and you know keep the farm afloat. They're a great organization who have worked with them, have volunteered with them, and they just received a $250,000 grant from the Ingolstead Family Foundation Mm. to uh, support their mission. So I think that's very cool. That is really cool. That would make a good interview. Yes. 127 different farm and ranch families received assistance Mm. of different varieties in 2017, which is more than double 2016. So folks, check out Farm Rescue. Great, great group to uh, to work with. I like that. I'm glad you ended it on a on a positive note. Yeah, yeah. Despite what happens in D.C., at the end of the day, American agriculture is full of cool people who are willing to do the right thing to help a neighbor and even somebody far away. Absolutely. Well, let's jump into the markets. And our markets today are provided by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Get in touch with them. Put a plan together. 
for your marketing strategy. You give them a call at 312-277-0050, or you can visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, we've got some green on the screen today as we take a look at the corn market right off the bat the july corn contract was unchanged on the day at 352 and a half december new crop unchanged finished the day at 373 and a quarter soybeans mixed trade today well higher trade today the july contract up a quarter cent at 867 and a half november up one and a half cents closed at 889 even and in chicago wheat front month july up 10 cents on the day Closed at 479 and a half. September up five and a half cents. Finished at 488 and a half. Looking over at the livestock markets, positive trade in the live cattle territory. June contract up a dollar ten at 107.02.50. The August up 30 cents at 102.72.50. Little weakness in feeder cattle as the August contract was down 32 and a half cents at 145.77.50. September was down 20. Closed at 146.47.50. And in lean hogs, the July. Was up a dollar ten today at eighty twenty two fifty, and the August up thirty cents, finished at seventy five oh five. Looking at the dairy market in Class Three milk, the June contract up a penny at fifteen twenty three, and the July a little bit of a rebound after this week's earlier sell off, up twenty four cents, closed the day at fourteen thirty. Now, before we get to a conversation from our rock star intern Hannah Pagel down at Farm Her talking sheep dairying, let's hear a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. Joining us this week is Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, we've heard from growers that Japanese beetles are starting to make their appearance known. Boy, what should they be thinking of this time of year? Yeah, Mike, I mean, the, the Japanese beetles seem like they're coming out about the same time as the June beetles this year. I mean, it's just, uh, they're a little ahead of schedule. I know reports all across the state, especially here in the northern part. Uh, if you look at the calendar and, and kind of what we've seen the past 30 years, we're about two to 300 uh, growing degree units above average, which <laughs> makes sense with all the hot temperatures we've had. So it kind of pushed those Japanese beetles out of the ground a little faster than normal. And, um, you know, gotta, you just got to remember the important parts. Usually their, their, their defoliation is not as big of a deal. It's usually the silk clipping and corn, which we're not there yet. But We've got a lot of small beans, especially in the northern part of the state, and I've seen a lot of setback by herbicides or other things. So they're, they're just not as good a health as, as normal. So uh, just pay attention to those types of fields because Japanese beetles can really uh, go to town pretty quick on, on small plants. You know, and your threshold is usually around 30% defoliation, uh, especially before bloom, and after bloom it's more like 20, 20% defoliation when, when you should spray. So. Uh, just keep those things in mind as, as you're looking at those small beans that are trying to ke- play catch up. Perfect. And folks, if you want to work with a company as quality as Latham High Tech Seeds, you can give them a shout at 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Hannah Pagel here with Egg News Daily, and today I am with Sarah Hoffman, the founder and owner of Green Dirt Farms, and Sarah, thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Thanks for being here. We're really excited to host you guys. Definitely. So, let's just start off by giving our listeners just a little bit of background on what Green Dirt Farms is and what you're doing here. 
Well, Green Dirt Farm is a grass-based sheep dairy, and we make artisan sheep's milk cheeses. And in the last couple of years, we've actually included some cow's milk cheeses. We've partnered with some local dairies to bring us cow's milk and additional sheep's milk. And um, we make artisan cheeses. But we also host events on our farm, and we have a small farm store that's not on the farm, but is in Weston, the little the historic town that we're near. Awesome. Now, give a little background as to why you wanted to get into the sheep dairy business. What sparked the interest here? Well, actually, um, I, I originally my original goal was just to um, start a small farm business. I wanted to start a small farm business so that my kids would grow up on a farm because I grew up that way and I wanted my kids to experience it. And um, so I started looking around. Um, my husband and I bought a small farm here in Weston, Missouri. And I started researching what could we do on a small farm that could be something that was not just met our values of environmental sustainability, but also economic sustainability. So I, I started looking into it, and then I realized that one of the things we could do would be to have a dairy and make cheese. You could add value to our, for, to our dairy products by making cheese and um, reach sustainability that way. And so I started researching what we might do on a small dairy and realized, well, there's really um, a lack of sheep's milk dairies in the United States. There are a lot in Europe and Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, um, but very few in the United States. And in fact, um, in the U.S., we import 95% of the sheep dairy products that we consume here. So I thought there would be a good market niche for sheep dairy products. I really love sheep as a as a livestock animal. I grew up with them. And um, so that's how I landed on doing sheep's milk cheeses. Now, are there a lot of sheep dairy operations in the United States currently, or do you have any insight on that? Yeah, actually, I belong to the Dairy Sheep Association of North America, which is an industry a trade group. Uh, and so we know that there are fewer than 100, probably fewer than 60 sheep dairies in all of the U.S. Um, and, and in fact, um, that's probably because sheep dairying is really new to the U.S. Um, there were very few sheep dairies before 1990 in the U.S. and in the early 90s uh, dairy sheep were started to be imported into the U.S. but of course in the early 90s we didn't get the best genetics into the U.S. Um, we were more or less getting the European cast-offs and um, by the time uh, the mid-90s rolled around when the USDA shut down the borders to new importations of genetics because of hoof and mouth disease and mad cow disease in Europe, um, we had very limited genetic lines of dairy sheep in the U.S. So um, the dairy sheep industry has really been um, suffering. We're kind of at a, a critical level right now where we really need those new genetics to bring in, to bring in better production uh, to our animals and help us get through the economic challenges of sheep dairy. Now, can you walk us through a little bit on what is or what's the process of, you know, milking dairy sheep? I, I mean, I'm thinking of like large like dairy operations like with Holsteins and the cattle sure. and whatnot. How does yeah. it work with sheep? Well, it, it's essentially the same. It's just a smaller animal, so a lot easier to handle. Um, and we, we use um, modern mechanized equipment uh, just like cow dairies do. We have a, a single 12 uh, milking parlor. Uh, that means we have 
12 head gates and we let 12 sheep in at a time and then we milk them with a, a typical um, uh, vacuum system that has clean in place uh, for the clusters. Um, it's a little different from cow dairies just in the sense that, um, well, sheep only have two teats and cows have four, <laughs> but uh, the other difference is that we have to use a much faster pulsation rate um, for sheep uh, and um, a lower uh, pressure. But Essentially, it's the same. Okay. And how long does it usually take to milk your herd of sheep? Yeah, so, so dairy sheep, uh, at least the American dairy sheep, produces relatively small quantities of milk. So you can milk out a dairy sheep in about 60 to 90 seconds. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> really, really fast. It takes us about uh, 15 minutes to milk a line of 12 and typically about three hours to milk 150 to 200 sheep, depending on the efficiency of the operator. Okay. And the composition of the milk, how is that different from yeah. typical uh, cattle milk? Yeah. So um, uh, cow's milk typically has a protein of around 3 to 4% and a fat, same, 3 to 4%. But dairy sheep have almost twice as much of protein and fat. So typically 5 to 6 to 7, depending on the breed, um, of protein and fat. So it's really, I, I like to say, people are, people are often remarking about the amount of fat in the sheep milk, but it's really not about the fat. It's about the concentration of the milk. It's just a more concentrated milk than is cow's milk or goat's milk. Goat's milk is very um, similar in terms of the amount of milk solids in it. Um, that it's very similar to cow's milk, but um, both of them are very different than sheep's milk. So does the composition of the milk make it more desirable for cheese making? Uh, yes, in many ways. In some, uh, it, it actually there's a lot more calcium in sheep's milk than there is in um, goat or cow's milk, and that makes the curd easier to handle. So a, a cheesemaker really loves working with sheep milk because the curd is more stable and it's easier to work with. You know, um, you don't have to do as much tweaking of the recipe as the lactation as the, the milk changes through the lactation period. And when you first got into the artisan cheese making, what what was some of the challenges that you had to overcome there? Do you make all the cheese yourself? or? Yeah, no, I used to. Um, when we first started, I made all the cheese. I, I, I developed all the recipes. Um, after learning how to make cheese, I didn't know how to make cheese, so that was the first <laughs> challenge that I had to overcome. Um, but I, I went to a lot of workshops at the University of Wisconsin. I went to a workshop at the University of Oregon. I went to a, a workshop at the University of Missouri. And I was fortunate enough through family friends to get to go to France and make cheese with traditional cheesemakers there so oh, I could wow. see the traditional way of making the cottage industry cheeses in France which was a really really wonderful experience um, and so then I came home and I practiced and practiced and practiced and um, made a lot of bad cheese but eventually <laughs> uh, started making some good cheese and so in 2008 is when we actually opened our, our cheese kitchen we um, made the jump you know got the courage and the resources to build the buildings and started making the cheese and then um, about six years ago I uh, hired a young woman as an intern and then it, she became a, a cheese making assistant and then she became a cheese maker in training and now she's uh, trains and is our he head cheese maker and um, one of the things that I found is that um, in running the business I really needed to get out of the cheese kitchen and stop making the cheese and work on making the business run and be profitable. Now, how many 
pounds of cheese can does your operation produce or what's what's the outlook like for that yeah so we know what we need to do to get to economic sustainability um, we think we probably need to get somewhere to around 50 to 60,000 pounds of cheese a year and right now we're right about 30,000 pounds of cheese a year so we've been steadily growing our first year in operation uh, the cheese kitchen didn't get finished until July which is already three-quarters of the way through a typical sheep milking season and um, so we only made 800 pounds of cheese but then that we've steadily grown since that time and uh, last year we made about 25,000 pounds of cheese and this year we're going to make I think around 32,000 pounds of cheese. Now can you put that into perspective for me just a little bit like is that a lot of cheese for sheep or is it more? Yeah, no I, I think that, um, that 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 kind of scale is where sheep milk cheese makers need to be in order to have a, a economically sustainable business. Um, it's a lot in terms of you have to have a lot more infrastructure and you have to have the employees so there are a lot of overhead costs to consider when making that amount of cheese but it's still really a very uh, small we consider ourselves that we're handcrafted um, small batch cheese um, because you know really when you when you look at the the larger medium size or larger uh, cheese making companies they're making easily making 50,000 pounds of cheese in a week Oh, so, really? Yeah. So we're still on that kind of micro, you know, craft scale of cheese making. Okay. And what are some of the type of cheeses that your operation produces? Yeah, we because we're um, sheep milk primarily, and um, that's so unusual in the United States. We wanted to make a real diversity of offerings for our customers. So we make a wide range of styles of cheese. We make a soft, spreadable cheese that's kind of like the goat cheese chev. Um, but it's made with sheep's milk, so it's really different in flavor. And then we make soft ripened cheeses that are similar to brie or camembert from France. And then we make um, washed rind cheeses, which are in that family of che cheeses that uh, cheesemakers love to refer to as stinky cheeses. Okay. And uh, then we also make um, hard, long-aged cheeses um, in, the in rustic mountain style that's um, typical in the Alps or in the Pyrenees Mountains in France. And do you have a particular favorite? Well, one of my favorites, I, I feel kind of like the cheese are my children, so I don't want to point out <laughs> favorites too much, but uh, I do, I, I'm really fond of Bassa, which is uh, one of our washed rind cheeses, um, and I'm fond of it because uh, that was a, a completely original recipe that I developed when we first got started, and one of the things that was so encouraging when we first got started was that um, in our second year of operation, we won a lot of awards, and our Bossa cheese won a first place award at the American Cheese Society annual competition, and that just like really got us excited and jazzed up and, and feeling proud and feeling like, hey, we can make some good cheese. And uh, I think Bossa was kind of that in inspiring cheese that kept us going. Perfect. Now, can you hit a little bit on what's the target market? Who are you reaching out to? Where are you selling this cheese at? Yeah, so a, a, an artisan cheese, it's a much higher um, dollar price point. Um, so we really, we really reach out to uh, gourmet grocery stores, gourmet cheese shops, the higher-end retail shops. Um, uh, Whole Foods carries our cheese. Um, some of the higher-end shops in, in Kansas City. A lot of restaurants carry our cheese and have had our cheese on their plates, on their cheese plates.
So that's also really validating when a really good restaurant takes your cheese and puts it on their cheese plate. You know that's good. For sure. And if our listeners have any more info or want to get a hold of you or want to learn more about the types of cheese that you're producing or even uh, dairy production with sheep, where can they go to find some more information? Yeah, they can uh, email me directly, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at greendirtfarm.com, or they can go to our website, greendirtfarm.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Thank you for coming. Well, Delaney, have you ever had sheep dairy products? No, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I mean, I've had like goat cheese, but I didn't know sheep cheese was a thing. Yeah, I I didn't either. So I'm pretty, pretty excited to learn about this. There's always new industries in agriculture to learn about. It kind of makes me laugh because you're always like the person that's like, oh, yeah, let's raise chickens. Let's raise ducks. Let's raise sheep dairies. I'm not raising chickens. Be... Chickens are gross. <laughs> that's a fact. The only good chicken is a chicken in a strip. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Well, but ducks uh, are awesome. And yeah, I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe. She... But, you know, milking is just so much work. That's true. It is a lot of work. And I am lazy. You are absolutely lazy. <laughs> <laughs> On that uh, note, folks, stay yeah. tuned. Delaney, where can they get more information about my lazy self and your hardworking self? <laughs> Well, uh, I want to give a quick shout out here to Garrett Scar. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name, Garrett. He uh, sent us a message on the website. You can head to agnewsdaily.com. We have a contact us submission form. And Garrett sent us this really awesome article um, about bringing the farm back to nature. So we're going to have to hopefully get some people on to talk about that article. But if you guys have articles, thoughts, opinions, comments, questions, anything really you want to talk to Mike and I, want to shoot the breeze you can find us online you can also find us on our facebook and twitter page by searching for ag news daily and with that mike should we let the people go let's let them go 